The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Our shapeshifter this evening is Doug Craigie Stevenson. He's the chief executive at Cell C. It's a cell phone operator that's been struggling since inception to find a model that works in the South African environment and recently a rethink on strategy. And we'll get into some of that this evening. But when I woke up at quarter past four this morning, Doug, I was thinking about you uh, and thinking, what gets Doug Craigie Stevenson out of bed in the morning? Because it just seems like you've got a hell of a lot of hard work a hell of a lot of the time. What what motivates you? Uh, evening, Bruce. Thanks for for having me again. Yeah, so I wasn't I wasn't up much later than you, probably about quarter past five. And and, and I think I think the big thing that's getting me up today is 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 what I would call you know sort of this, the the second half, so to speak, um, with the recap behind me now. Um, I'm I'm excited about getting into into back into the game so to speak and 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 looking at the opportunities you know i think there's so much pessimism at the moment and and so much uh, critique about what's going on and and actually there's a lot of successes going on in little bits and pockets all over the place that we need to sort of embrace a little bit so you know for me i've got a, a much more invigorated office building to walk into and i believe that our plan and our model has been tested and we're going to go forward from there so there's a lot to look forward to to get up and it's summer and it's warm again <laughs> exactly that that does help um what is the plan what is the model what is the uh, you know if, if celsi is still around in five years time what will it be doing well as i've said already uh, before it, it, it's it's moving towards a tech go and i think that was largely driven out of you know, the day I took over in March of 2019, uh, I sort of looked at everything and said, there's absolutely no ways that this, that this business can carry on the way it had done. As, as you rightly pointed out, it had been around since 2001 and it was going nowhere, racked up billions in losses. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't designed to, to do anything. So the, the first thing that, that one had to do was in this particular case is I had to sort of stabilize the business. And I've talked about the four pillars of the strategy, which is what I'd executed on. And the last one of that being obviously the recapitalization and, and having the, the conviction to carry forward. But the network strategy was the big part of that. And that was to be able to compete, um, with like for like. And as you'll have seen from the latest results, the transformation of going to a virtualized RAN, taking away the capital narrative, um, and allowing I, I, the business I've to just have lost even tra- I've lost track of what you're talking about now, Doug, because you know you're talking tech and you're talking cell phone. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's a business that's been under duress. Um, you've sold off any base stations and, and, and that sort of stuff to other operators. Essentially, what you're doing is you've got clients who've got a cell C contract with you. They don't really care what network they're operating mm-hmm. on as long as the calls don't drop and the calls are, are affordable. That is the business model. You're talking about making a move move to more of a technology company. What sort of move is that? Is it a content game? Is it a financial services game? What is the game in your view? It's a, it's an inclusion game, Bruce. It's a, it's, it's, it's a sharing game and it's the, it's the ability for me to have partnerships that work with other people that say um, it's not mobile industry only specific. So you will see the take on of, 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 a, of partners to the MVNO model um, and looking at, at our ability to use the technology platform that we actually have, that's our legacy, and then start to, to move towards products that we can overlay onto that. And, and, and that's what's got to drive the customer experience because we're not a liked industry. We, we are seen as a barrier between people being able to access what they want through this data trap. And that's really what I mean by moving into the tech code. So 
partnerships with the banks and retailers and that type of thing is really where we're going. And so the product sets then evolve in that and we become a technology platform that supports all of that. Okay. Um, the What's your background? Where did you grow up? What was your profession? How did you get to the position where you became Chief Operations Officer at Celsi in 2017 before taking over as CEO in 2019? Give us a, a potted history, if you like. Well, a little bit of history. I grew up, I actually came in as an immigrant. The, the surname comes from a Scottish father, um, and that's where it comes from. So people easily remember that uh, or remember the surname. Um yeah, I didn't. I didn't have a lot growing up, um, and sort of the accounting CA route was where I started off. I went into uh, articles was the one thing that you could do while you worked, uh, sort of part time or you studied part time, um, and then from there I actually joined Vodacom straight out of articles. So I've been in the telco industry for most of my life. I then broke service and remember sitting in the back of a seven four seven, the very last seat. On on a trip to America for a job that I'd taken up with with Oracle, and that sort of shaped me and opened the world for me to see to see what was available there. But more importantly, the people narrative came out, and I suddenly understood that people were what make things move. So that's back sort of, of where back I, of back of the plane was that significant? So we were you used to travelling at the pointy bits in the front with uh, tablecloths and stuff oh, no, and, and, and glass. I'd never been in a plane. I'd barely <laughs> been in a plane. So I was quite happy with that. 26-hour trip all the way to ending up in Redwood Shores, California. So I thought it was wonderful. Little did I realize a couple of years later, traveling all over the world for them was, was going to, to, to be a big thing. But I think the big thing for, for me was the, the decision to move. Um, and that was a lot of the things that I learned with what was happening in South Sea, in the sense that you have to have something that is the impetus that creates it. In that particular case, I'd, I'd become a manager and I went and left a job that looked like it was the beginning of the nascent industry that was mobile and then toddled off to the US to go and do something else. It turned out to be one of the best things I ever did and ended me uh, up doing expatriate. Back. Now, talk to me about that decision because that is often it's it's a decision that shapes many executives. They go from comfort and security, um, but comfort and security can be stagnating. It can be very restrictive, and put themselves in a, a, take themselves out of their comfort zone, as you seem to have done with Oracle, which is a fundamentally different business. And getting that global experience, having your eyes open to the rest of the world in a different industry, um, you say it shaped you differently. Explain to me what it did and how it changed your view of the world and your ability to do different things? Well, I was very privileged, Bruce, because for, for, for a company like that, the first thing you did was you touched a vast amount of industries in the consulting side of it with the basic ERP systems. And I remember very fondly being told, you've been handed a garden services company to go and do work for. I was to myself, this is insane. How can a garden services company, it was called the FA Bartlett Tree Experts. And the first one garden that I went to was New York's uh, Central Park and I realized then okay there's a very big world out there and you have to go and explore that world whether you're sitting in corporate or you're sitting anywhere and that just changed the way I saw everything everything was just bigger and possible and that's how I saw it uh, then why did that change where, where you left the uh, Oracle at some point did you come straight back to South Africa was there a better offer on the table domestically were you getting too old to do the global jollying what was going on no, I was funnily enough on, in transit. I was actually on my way to the Middle East, and, and I happened to be visiting the offices. And uh, at the time, Vodacom had started um, their first moves into into Africa, and I took up uh, the, the position as the general manager of finance in Tanzania. 
Right, we're going to pick up on that point in just a moment with our shapeshifter this evening, Doug Craigie Stevenson, the chief executive nowadays of Cell C, talking about his global experience, the importance of uh, upwardly mobile executives of getting that global experience. Uh, what sort of global experience do you accept? What have you taken? What have you done in your career that has fundamentally shifted your perspective? I see a lot of people going and doing courses at Harvard and getting that on the CV and getting a sense of worldliness about them. We're talking about worldliness and its importance in the South African context in a moment with our shapeshifter, Doug Craigie Stevenson. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Do you mentor people, Doug? I mean, Doug Craigie Stevenson, our shapeshifter, do you mentor people or do you see that as an important part of the role? Not within CELC, people who report to you and your mentoring is the side to your job, but outside of the organization, a lot of people manage somehow to find the time to do that. I, I actually do uh, uh, for the for the uh, Nelson Mandela Foundation. I've done a couple of of, of, of sessions at sixty seven minutes of mentorship. So it's actually incredibly fulfilling to do um, because you you understand just uh, how much um, ambition and how much talent we have. And you know, I've found in the experience of the mentoring I've done is that you've got these very well educated youngsters that have. They don't, they don't want to know how to be a CEO. They want to know how to operate in an environment. And that's, that's what I found. So I found it incredibly, um, uh, it, it's not time consuming at all. It's actually very rewarding. And a lot of people say they learn a lot more from that than perhaps they did in the classroom, whether it was the MBA, whether it was the executive training program they went on, paid tens of thousands of dollars. They learn a lot more from those sorts of interactions about the real world and people's real life experience, perhaps, than they would have in any other sort of interaction. No, you're absolutely right, and I mean a lot of the of the stories that I would tell and articulate to to these mentees is 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 exactly what you say. It's it's oh, but in that particular case, this is what happened to me, and they become anecdotal, but they they real can be real takeaways for them. Um, you know, one big thing that I had was how did I get a a budget through a, a particular sales director that was quite um, sort of unique Difficult. in his own way, and I difficult doing it on. Are you saying difficult? No? No, eccentric is probably the best way to put it. But I ended up doing the budget on a napkin and then I translated it into the Excel. It was easier that way. But once I understood how to do it, it it sounded a little bit crazy, but it, it worked perfectly because I understood how I was thinking. You're, you've you've had jobs all over the African continent. You've worked in Malawi. You've worked um, all over the place, Mozambique and in Tanzania. You've done lots of different jobs. How disruptive is that process of sort of you get into a job, you, you're getting your feet under the desk, you're just beginning to work out how it works, and the next opportunity sort of comes bashing the door down. You're going, oh, that's exciting. Good, excellent. Another challenge. It must be, you know, yes, challenging, but exhausting at the same time. I guess it's 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 dependent on where you get your energy from. For me, I didn't find that at all. I actually found it uh, quite the opposite. I found it rather invigorating. I think one must not uh, confuse sort of the daily grind, so to speak, with with the um, the bouquet of things that come across your across your desk. And what I always found so rewarding with these places was that you were constantly, as you said, out of your comfort zone. So where you would be in a much more compartmentalized type of environment in a in a very uh, efficient economy or a very developed economy, you found you were you were being asked to do so many different things. And and in that, if you, you can either embrace it as something that you want to do and learn and get the experience from, or you see it as grunt. I saw it as 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 
something that was very positive for me to do. And I learned an enormous amount and it made, it made my um, bandwidth considerably wider to solve problems and to understand how people think. Uh, yeah, I mean, expat life, though, isn't an easy life. I mean, it, it takes its toll on relationships. It takes its toll on friendships and family and all sorts of things. I mean, how did you manage to balance out um, the demands of, of sort of personal life with the demands of being in different places in different years and different times and different time zones and all sorts of other issues? I think the biggest thing for me was to have an anchor. So I always had the same home. I never moved around with the home. And also to share the common goal for, for the, for the people that you're touching the closest to in terms of family. So as long as they understood it, but uh, you, you know, keeping contact, there's many ways that you can keep contact. I mean, I think there's many families in, in, in South Africa that pass in the night and you're in the same house every day, expatting. And my son went to boarding school. Actually, I found forged the relationship, not pushed it apart. Okay. No, no. It's, and it is what you make of it, of course. And it is that takes that extra bit of commitment, but it is in the name of building a career. What do you do for fun, Doug? I actually have a little hobby that turned out, well, it started as a hobby. It's farming and, and growing basically herbs and, and, and lettuce products and that type of stuff that goes into the big retailers. And, and you do that commercially? Yes. I mean, I don't run it. So I just no, no, of course. Him. I mean, you're a gentleman but, um, farmer. One doesn't expect you to get soil under your fingernails. Uh, but what I do, I do know that yes. you've got three different names for coriander, by example, and, and I have an immense interest in what are in they? There's, there's 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 coriander, there's cilantro, and what's the third one? Dania. Pardon? Dania. Dania. I, heard that. I, I, yes. I mean, I think I've heard that, but I, it's not something that I'm familiar with. Maybe that's more of an Indian reference to, to coriander, of course. Very that's popular exactly in, in, where it comes from. In, in Indian food. But um, so what, is, is that just crops then? No, no animals and none of that sort of stuff. Is no. there a, a physical property that you go to or uh, that you no, own? Got, Do you lease but land? But physical properties that, are, that we go to, it's, it's, in, it's incredibly in, intriguing to see plants grow and what they do and and uh, the science behind it, in actual fact, is, is quite um, is quite something different. Is it quite large scale? I mean, is it tens of hectares, hundreds of hectares, fives of it's hectares? Hundreds of, okay, hundreds. It's hundreds okay. of hectares. Oh, it, it, as if you, your life isn't complicated enough, you've thrown agriculture into the mix for a little bit of light entertainment. It shows how tough your day job is if you need that kind of distraction. Are you dependent on the elements? Are you able to do drip irrigation and, and farm in tunnels and do it um, in a more sort of oh, We do exactly that. Way. We farm in mm. tunnels and, and the like with drip irrigation and by square meter. I learned a lot actually in Europe about it and, and, and the mechanics of it as well. The Dutch um, are mad so about the sort of stuff. The Dutch are insane. I mean, they're the world's second biggest producer of food after the United States on like a fraction of the land because of the efficiency of the way they do it. Do you get to read much? I do indeed. It's the one like, thing I do enjoy as well. Uh, but like, but like boring, serious business books and learning lessons from people and smart people or um, mm -hmm. do you read fun stuff? Now, actually, I, I, I actually try to read, um, I wouldn't say business boring books, but more uh, the book I'm reading at the moment is, is The Naked Pilot uh, by David Beatty. He talks about the human factor in aircraft aviation accidents and the like. He's a psychologist, actually, and a pilot as well. And it's, it sort of all draws that stuff together. Um, and I find those books very, 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 you know, very entertaining to, to read because, again, that, it goes to the… 
that talks to your own belief in people, people being at the center of business. I mean, it's all very good. You need to understand the balance sheet and the income statement. That's, you know, that's a foregone conclusion. But if you've got the wrong people doing the wrong things in the wrong organization, well, you're going to have a catastrophe at some point, a bit like putting the wrong person at the controls of an aircraft. Absolutely right. You know, the adage that uh, your greatest asset is your human your human resource, well, that's absolutely true, but it can also be your greatest liability. Um, and I view myself as not being an autocratic leader, but far more of a person that is uh, uh, approachable and talk to. And, and I think that's been a lot of where we've we've had a problem in the past is that you've got to allow people to be free to to think and to voice what they, they want. At the same time, I don't really tolerate, um, you know, simplicity that's, or stupidity. I've got very little time for that. But you definitely need to listen to what's going on. And if people have got a valid argument, you have to apply your mind to it. Uh, what is, uh, what, what's your view on South Africa in the future? I think it's an important question to ask people who are shapeshifters, people who are influential in their industries, in their businesses, as you are as the CEO of Celsi. What is, what is your sort of high road, low road scenario for South Africa? Look, I mean, we, we, we can't, uh, argue that we don't have a number of challenges. But, I mean, I don't think you will find a more resilient and progressive country. Um, this, 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 this country's been through an enormous amount of, of, of ups and downs. Um, but you, you go and look at a lot of the, the, the things in this country that, that do work and the ability and the will of people to get things to move. I think that's our greatest thing. It's a, a tenacious society. This. It's, a, it's a society that... That is got problems, but I most definitely would rather be here than, than, than in, 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 in at some other countries. Um, I'm eternally optimistic about this country and, and certainly see myself as, as being here till the end. At the end, your end, not the country's end. I'm yes, checking. of course. Okay. <laughs> just checking, just checking. I mean, you know, so many pessimists about who, um, are absolutely hell bent on almost fermenting the, uh, a catastrophe for South Africa so they can say, Oh, well, look, I told you so. Um, what gives you the confidence? What is it about the country that gives you the level of confidence that allows you to make that sort of quite strong and committed statement? Well, well, I think Bruce, if I look at my own path that I've moved, I've, I've gone through a number of, of issues in my own right. Um, and then I think the traveling, the ability of seeing, um, other places, because when you, when you can draw comparatives, you can understand what's the, the, the pros and the cons of most things. And, and a lot of people talk on a position of opinion without really substantial, um, fact or, or for that matter, a knowledge. Um, and, and I'm very thankful to have done all these wanderings for many of years, so to speak, because it's allowed me to make very, to make these statements and to sit and look at a, a country blessed by sunshine that, that will move towards green energy. Uh, it's sheer geographic. If you look at a country like this, we've got, uh, if you look at the provinces, you go in any direction, north, east, south, and west, you've got different climates, different. The, the, the diversity of this country in its own right is just absolutely phenomenal. Doug, in every great. respect. Doug Craigie Stevenson, we must leave it there. Thank you so much for taking time out for chatting to us this evening. A fascinating, wide-ranging discussion, getting to know a little bit about the CEO of Celsius.